0: I would have you join me. John's Gospel. John chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading verses 14 to 22, but our focus will start really down in verse 16. But we want, once again, to catch a bit of the context. John 19, beginning in verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he, that is Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, Lord, open Your Word to us that we we would both see and hear and then understand all that is transpiring here. That we would see it with our minds, that we would feel it with our being, that we would comprehend and understand the significance of this all-important event Proclaimed by the prophets, fulfilled in Jesus, and celebrated by Your church even as we have this morning. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So we come now to the very heart of the Gospel story. Everything has been building to this point. Everything Jesus has done, every teaching He has given, every act of love and compassion, all point here. So that what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 would take place. If the Son of Man would be lifted up, and when that happened, whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. So your salvation, your hope of eternal life, your chance of escaping from the death of this world, depend on what happens here. And so let's let these crucial events kind of get into our minds and hearts as we consider what they mean for us. The whole thing begins as Jesus is handed over to be killed. Verse 16 says, So He was delivered to them. So He, that is Pilate, delivered Him over to them to be crucified. This is the ultimate betrayal in all human history. Uh, The word John uses here, uh, to hand over, uh, can also be translated translated, and often is translated as to betray. There have been a series of betrayals, in fact, throughout this story as we've watched it unfold. Uh, This same word is used of Judas when he betrays Christ to the soldiers in John 18.2. It's used again in John 18.35 when the Sanhedrin betray their true king and hand him over to Pilate. And now it's used here of Pilate, who knows Jesus is innocent, and yet hands Him over to those who will kill Him. I mean, the King of the universe has come to us, and we betrayed Him. And I say we, because John once again does something very interesting with the language here. It's another one of those ambiguous statements of his that we have seen. As you read through this in the original, it's, it's really not clear exactly who it is Jesus is handed over to. Is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? Is it someone else? Now, historically, we know that it is the Roman soldiers who take Jesus and nail Him to the cross. But, but John leaves it ambiguous enough to make us think as we're reading, well, who is it then who is holding these nails? Who really is driving death into the body of Jesus? So that we might understand, well, it really it is us. It's all humanity in our sin. It's we who in our rebellion ultimately betray God. Were you there when they crucified my King? Well, in a very real way, yes. Second then, we see Jesus is treated like a criminal who is made to carry his own cross. Verse 17, it says, So they took Jesus, and He went out, bearing His own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. This was standard Roman procedure for a crucifixion. The... Greek writer Plutarch said and he lived just after the time of Christ he said each criminal as part of his punishment is made to carry his own cross but don't imagine that that means the whole cross both beams uh, which is what we often see portrayed in art and literature but that would be too heavy for almost any uh, man to actually carry it really would have just been the crossbeam part of the cross what it was called the patibulum which they would then lash across the victim's shoulders, his hands tied to the back of it, so that he would then not be able to drop it. And you can just imagine what that would actually mean for Jesus as he begins to stumble and fall to the ground, his hands bound to this great heavy beam. But the goal of all of this was humiliation, degradation. The Romans wanted this man to be seen as less than dirt. Just prior to this, Jesus would have been whipped for the second time with that more brutal, back-shredding form of punishment that we call scourging. This would have led to severe physical trauma and blood loss, which, by the way, will explain why He is not able to carry the cross for long. Just past the city gates, so the other Gospels tell us, Jesus collapses, His physical body reaching the end of human endurance... And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us at this point the Romans grab a bystander by the name of Simon and he is forced to carry the cross the rest of the way. Matthew 27.32 As they went out, meaning through the city gates, they found a man of serene Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the cross. But it all began with Jesus carrying His own wooden cross through the gate and out of the city toward the place of execution. Two Old Testament images come into play here. The early church especially saw in this event an echo of Isaac carrying the wood of his execution up this very same hill. Did you realize that the hill where Isaac is taken by Abraham for sacrifice called Mount Moriah and these hills in and around Jerusalem are in fact the same cluster of hills, perhaps the very same hill itself. Maybe you remember that God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so as they go up this same hill toward the place of sacrifice, we're told that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself took in his hand the fire and the knife and they went up, both of them together. And Isaac looks around and says to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, My son. And so the two of them continued on. Together, And if you remember that scene, they do go together to that place. Abraham binds his son Isaac for the sacrifice, but at the very last moment, God intervened. God steps in and rescues Isaac. Isaac does not die because God indeed provides a lamb to die in his place. But now another father. The father has sent his son up this same hill, bearing the wood for his sacrifice. This time there will be no rescue. No voice from heaven will intervene. The Son will die because Christ is indeed that promised Lamb that was spoken of. Second, many have also noted how Christ is taken outside the gates of the city for execution. John says again in verse 17, So they took Jesus and He went out bearing his own cross. And again, we hear echoes from the Old Testament. to be taken outside the gate was to be seen as one who was bearing the curse of God. Criminals who had blasphemed God were to be taken outside the gate for execution, Deuteronomy 17. Then on the day of atonement the the animals that had symbolically borne the curse of God for sin were also taken outside the city gate. To be burned. Leviticus 16. And Christ is taken outside the gates. And, and lest you think I'm just reading a little bit too much into this, the author of Hebrews makes it clear he sees it and he wants us to see it. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 says that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. Christ suffered outside the gates bearing the reproach of God for us that we might be redeemed. And so they took Him bearing His own cross as far as He could and then following behind Simon once He could bear it no more. And they came to the place called the skull. Golgotha. In Aramaic, Carvalho. I said that wrong. Carvalho. I don't do Latin. Um, in Latin. But that's where we get our word Calvary. From Carvaria. All of those mean the skull. This, this hilltop that resembled in some way the top of a skeleton's head and was known to be a place of execution. This was not the first Roman execution on that spot, nor would it be the last. But verse 18 says, There they crucified Him. Four simple words in English, three in Greek, and yet full of weight. It's been noted that none of the Gospel writers go into any kind of detail about the crucifixion itself. They didn't need to. If you were alive at that time and lived in a Roman province, you'd seen a crucifixion. And once you saw a crucifixion, you would not be able to unsee it. You would never be able to get it out of your mind. It would have been burned into your brain like a nightmare. That was, by the way, one of the goals. Rome intended crucifixion to be so horrible that no one would ever be able to forget it. Even the Romans were appalled by it. Cicero calls it the cruel and disgusting penalty. Pliny said it was despicable. Josephus said it was the most pitiable of deaths. Others called it obscene, repulsive, utterly offensive. So much so that the Roman Senate had even passed a law that said no Roman citizen could ever be crucified except in the case of a soldier who was a deserter. No, this was reserved for the vilest of criminals. And so Jesus was crucified as a criminal Among criminals, verse 18, "...there they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them." All four Gospels mention these other two, these criminals crucified alongside of Christ. Matthew 27.38 says, "...the robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and one on the left." The word Matthew uses for robbers there is the same word that we saw used for Barabbas back in John 18. Uh, These men were bandits. They were highwaymen. They, 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 They could even be, this word translated, insurrectionists. These were very bad men caught doing very bad things. In all likelihood, that middle cross had originally been intended for none other than Barabbas himself. But now Christ has taken His place. John describes this scene... In a very interesting way though. Literally what he says is, and there were two others with him, one here and one here with Jesus in the middle. Now if you think about that, you'll realize that's eyewitness language. John is describing this scene as if he himself was standing right there watching this unfold, which of course we know that he was, as we'll see down in verse 26. But why does John tell us this? One of the marks of John's gospel is he likes to keep things narrowly focused on Jesus himself. He tends to sometimes simply ignore other details in order to accomplish that. He didn't even tell us about Simon of Cyrene the way the other three do. So why does he point out these three these two men? I think it's because John is always hearing echoes of the prophet Isaiah in his mind as he is thinking and writing about these things. And he would have known that Isaiah 53.12, as it describes the Messiah who is pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, he then says that he poured out his soul in death and was numbered with the transgressors. And John is standing there and he saw that unfolding and it could never leave his mind. Jesus died a criminal's death surrounded by criminals for the crime of our sin. And by the way there is good news tucked in the middle of this terrible scene for even as Jesus himself is dying in this horrible way he suddenly displays his power to save. Do you remember how Luke tells us about that in Luke chapter 23 39 to 43. At first we're told in one of the other gospels that both these criminals joined the crowd in reviling Jesus but then one of them continued Luke Christ said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Oh, the power of Christ to give one perishing soul life and hope even as he himself dies in this horrible way. I mean, take note of that, dear friend. Take note of that. Think what that could mean for you in your suffering and your struggles as you turn and trust Him. But there, they crucified Him. Again, four simple words. That's all John gives us. And so I don't don't want to go too far with this, and I know I'm always aware that there are children in the room. But crucifixion was brutal. It was meant to be. And so we do, in this age of ours, where we've thankfully never witnessed it, need to have some understanding of what is involved. Several years ago, the Journal of American Medical Association published a report by four doctors who did a deep dive uh, into the history to examine the Roman practice of crucifixion. That paper is called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. I've got some copies in the out in the foyer. You can also find it online. Let me borrow from some of that report this morning. First of all, they give the background that nearly any good history book could give you. They say that crucifixion probably began among the Persians. Alexander the Great then introduced it to Egypt and Carthage, and the Romans appear to have learned it from the Carthinians. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution, usually reserved only for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest, of criminals. So at the site of execution, the criminal would be stripped, thrown down on his back on top of the crossbeam, his arms stretched along that beam where both hands could either be nailed or tied, and the Romans had a definite preference for nailing. Those nails were five to seven inches long, iron spikes, driven not through the middle of the palm of the hand as we often imagine, uh, but but actually driven through the wrist. And the the Greek word used for hand includes the wrist. They don't have two separate words for that. And the wrist, uh, if you care about the, the medical aspects of it, those bones would hold the weight of the body, whereas the palm would not be able to do so. The Romans knew what they were doing. That nail through the wrist would crush that medial nerve. That's the one you feel when you're banging your elbow on something, and we call the funny bone, but it's anything but funny. That crushed nerve would then send fiery flashes of agonizing pain up and down the length of both arms for the entire process. It would also paralyze the hands, resulting in a kind of a claw like response that is sometimes referred to. Once nailed to the crossbeam, the victim was then hoisted up with ropes onto the upright beam called the stipes, which was already fixed into place, and then dropped onto the top beam and secured. The feet were then crossed, a nail placed between the both of them, one single nail, and driven through again. And sometimes there was a little platform for the feet to rest on, not as an act of mercy. This was really as a way to prolong the agony and prolong death. The crucified man was then left hanging, exposed to the elements, the heat of the sun, the flies, the insects. He was helpless. People would mock him and throw things at him, scream all kinds of vile accusations at him, as we know they did with Jesus. Death would come very slowly. And again, this was by design. This was meant to be a horrid spectacle. Again, the Journal of the American Medical Association Describes the process. The weight of the body immediately began to pull down on the outstretched arms, separating the shoulders and slowly paralyzing the, the intercostal muscles needed for passive exhalation, that is needed for breathing. And so to get a breath at all, the crucified man had to lift his body, uh, pushing against the nails in his feet, pulling down upon the nails in his wrists. That, of course, placed the whole weight of the body on those bones and nerves, producing excruciating pain. It would also require Him to scrape the torn back again and again up against the rough wood of that cross. But that's what it took to breathe. And the body demands to breathe. As long as the man had enough strength, there was this macabre dance of having to breathe. So pushing up against the nails and holding that position as long as you possibly could until exhaustion forces you to fall back to a limp position where once again you find that you cannot breathe. And so to get a breath, you would have to push up again and hold as far as you long and long as you can until you couldn't and you would fall and again and again and again. This is why some crucifixions could last for days. Rome meant this to be an unholy terror. In some cases, death did come after days. We'll see later that Jesus comes much quicker than that. For most, death would come not from the loss of blood or anything like that, but from sheer exhaustion. The strength of the body gave out. The man was too weak to raise up any longer, and so he would ultimately die of asphyxiation. But as terrible as all that is, and it it is, this is the stuff of nightmares, the physical sufferings of Christ were nothing compared to the spiritual torments He willingly endured. My God! My God! Why have You forsaken Me? As Christ became a sin offering bearing in his body on the tree the judgment for our sin first peter chapter 2 verse 24 tells us that christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died in our place. He bore the penalty that my sins deserved. He took my place under the agony of death, that by faith in Him I might have His life. Isaiah 53, verse 11, again says, As the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's what's happening when we look up and see the cross of Christ. Can you see him? Can you see what's happening there? Do you understand why this matters? Do you see that this is, in fact, your only hope? That His death would count for you? I mean, who is this man? Who is this man that He would do such a thing? That brings us then to this third thing this morning, and that is to see that Jesus in His death is seen to be the exalted King of glory. Who is this man? Pilate himself tells us, verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This too was a common Roman practice. The condemned criminal would be given a title, a ticklus, uh, publicly announcing his crime. Robber. Vandal. Murderer. In this case, Pilate labels Jesus the King of the Jews, the King of God's people. Now why does he do that? Well, I think, I really do think that in Pilate's case, this is his way of getting back at these religious leaders. This is a final dig at them. If you remember the last couple of weeks, Pilate was forced into this. He knew Jesus was innocent. He wanted to find a way to let Him go. But when they threatened to report Him to Caesar for failing to execute a rival king, Pilate caved. And now he's ashamed of that. You remember perhaps that scene in Matthew where he washes his hands publicly and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. But of course, he knows there are some stains water simply cannot wash away. But now he wants to make sure that they themselves will share in his shame. God sent you a king, and we killed him. Pilate wants the world to know that. I mean, crucifixions were made to be seen anyway. That's why the Roman did them in such a public way like this. But Pilate wants everyone to see not only what has happened, but why it has happened. He wants this to be seen. And it is. Verse 20 says, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. This could not have been more public. It was Passover week, so Jerusalem is filled with people from all over that part of the known world. The place of crucifixion itself is right outside the gate of one of Jerusalem's busiest entrances. That road would have been jammed with people anyway. And none of those people entering or leaving Jerusalem could possibly miss this. And if they could read it all or had a friend nearby who could read, they would be able to read this sign. Pilate made sure of it. He has it boldly stenciled in the three main languages of that region. Aramaic or Hebrew, the native language of Palestine, Latin is the official language of Rome, and Greek. Greek was the international trade language that nearly everybody spoke some of. That's why the New Testament's going to be written in Greek. Pilate wants this to be seen. This is why Jesus is dying, because he is Israel's long awaited king. Now, did Pilate actually believe that personally? I doubt it. We have no reason to think he came to faith. But personally or not, Pilate, once again, speaks far more truth than he can realize. Beasley Murray, in his commentary, writes this. He says, Pilate, the judge and representative of the dominion that ruled the world, hereby declares that Jesus on His cross is King of His people. A king conquers, provides, rules, and makes peace. Christ, our King, conquered our enemy, the devil, provided for forgiveness for our sins, rules in our hearts, and makes peace between sinners and God. All these kingly deeds Jesus achieved by dying on the cross for us, so it is proper for Him to have been hailed as King here. Maybe you remember just a week before this, Jesus had said in John 12, verse 23, "...the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit." Then He continues a few verses later and says, "...and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, a clear reference to crucifixion, I will draw all people to Myself." I mean, think of that. Think of that prophecy. I will be lifted up, and as a result of My being lifted up, people from everywhere will see and come. And Pilate says, write it in three languages so all can see, and presumably then all can come, that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You think God doesn't have a sense of irony? Let the world see the fact that this is their King. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The Messiah has come and from the cross now reigns. Whether Pilate understood that or not, is really not the point. Because this is exactly what that sign is saying. And don't doubt it for a minute that the Jewish leaders understood that. Because verse 21 says, they come storming in to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am king of the Jews. They bellow, you can't write that. Pilate waves them off and says, I just did. That's pretty much what he means. Pilate answered them, what I have written? I have written... And there's not a thing they can do about it. They threatened Pilate before for not killing a would-be king, but now that he has killed that would-be king, Caesar will not care one bit if the way he does it upsets a few Jewish leaders. So Pilate dismisses them. What I have written, I have written. It stands. It's a fascinating phrase that Pilate uses here. It's in what is called the the perfect tense, which communicates the idea that this stands firm. It's unalterable. It's like the rock of Gibraltar. It will not be moved. Jesus had used this same phrase several times in His Gospel to speak about the unalterable nature of Scripture. For example, John 6.45, He says, it is written, literally It is stands written in the prophets. And they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. For again, John 15.25, But the word that is written, stands written in their law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Personally, I find it hard to believe that John doesn't realize the impact of those words as he... Writes them down for us. It's as if Pilate says, What I have written stands as unalterably true as Scripture itself. It cannot be changed. This is who Jesus is. He is heaven's true king, dying as a sacrifice for fallen man's sin. That fact stands unalterably. Dear one, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the message. And Paul himself will write that out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He'll say, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve and to all these others, confirming the fact that He was alive. This is the Gospel. Christ died for sin, was raised on the third day, forever lives and may be known. By the way, those words Pilate spoke actually are now Scripture. (laughs) They are a part of the infallible record that we have before us. They are given so that you may know and understand who Jesus is and what He has done. John 20.31 will, toward the end of this Gospel, say, All these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This isn't just for those who lived then. This is for us sitting here today. Do you see Him? Do you see Him? As we enter into this season that leads up to Good Friday and Easter, you're going to be seeing a lot of crosses on cards and other decorations. You're going to hear people talking about Jesus, both believers and unbelievers. And when you do, when you see that cross, look up and see Christ for who He really is. See Him. Pilate said it, but didn't believe it. He didn't understand it. The Jewish leaders understood it, but they denied it. Will you look and see Christ and believe? I want to close with something that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, wrote. And looking at this same passage, Spurgeon said, Jesus claims to be king, so stand at the foot of His cross, I pray you, and admit His claim. If you would have Jesus to be your Savior, you must also have Him to be your king. You must submit to His government, for He claims the right to rule over all who acknowledge Him. Yes, more than that, He claims to rule all mankind. For all power is given to Him in heaven and in earth, and we are bidden to proclaim His kingdom throughout the whole world, and to say to all men, Jesus of Nazareth is your King. Bow down before Him. The claims of Christ were published even from the tree on which He died. Do not resist them. Instead willingly yield yourself up to Jesus now and let Him be King to you henceforth and forevermore. Lord, my prayer is that all here would see Jesus dying not as a tragic figure of history, but as the King of Kings who willingly took up our sins carried them to the cross, died under the righteous wrath of God to bear them away, to bury them forever, that he might rise having killed death and sin with the power to give life to all who repent and believe the promise of the gospel. Lord, would you do what you alone can do? Would you give that look to Christ by faith, to every hungry soul here, would you would you seal it to their hearts? Would you awaken their minds? Would you stir uh, even uh, the, the emotional being not to just have not to have pity on Christ, but with wonder and admiration to embrace Christ as King and Lord forever for the forgiveness of sins and the promised life forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.